0: Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I am a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historic lens. Today, we discuss how foreign traders dominated China's foreign trade in ancient times. According to the General Administration of Customs of China, The private sector in China posted 28% of year-long-year growth of foreign trade in the first 10 months of 2021, generating 48.3% of China's total imports and exports. Its growth rate and share both outperformed those of foreign-funded enterprises and state-owned enterprises. In 2019, China's private companies contributed more to foreign trade than foreign-funded businesses for the first time. From 2000 to 2018, more than 49% of China's foreign trade was made by foreign-funded businesses in China, according to China's Ministry of Commerce. In our previous podcast on November 10, we talked about how business people were discriminated against in Asian China. In contrast, Foreign merchants were very active in Asian China. This was particularly true for foreign trade. Young men from Wuling were at the golden market, and they laughed and went into a pub with foreign hostages. This is a poem written in the 8th century by Tang poet Li Bai, arguably the most famous poet of Asian China. Wuling was in the suburbs of today's Xianyang, Shanxi province, which was the former capital of the short-lived Qin dynasty in the late 3rd century BCE. But during the Western Han dynasty in the late 3rd century BCE, Wuling was where senior officials and dignitaries lived. Young men from Wuling referred to young men born of rich, noble families during that time. In Tang poems, the term was a literary allusion to guards of the imperial court. They were described as rich, chivalrous, and unrestrained, like the knights of medieval Europe. The golden market from Li Bai's poem was the bustling western market in the town capital of Chang'an, now called Xi'an. For reference, Chang'an downtown was located only kilometers from Wuling. The western market was the center for goods exchanged on the Silk Road brought to the city on camel trains. The other major Chang'an market was the eastern market where high-end customer goods were sold. Both markets were open only in the afternoon. In recent years, town figurines and pottery have been found bearing depictions of non-Han merchants with camel trains. They were major players in the town's domestic markets and foreign trade. Most merchants in Chang'an's two markets were Asian-Iranian-speaking Saudians. For more than 1,000 years in the 1st century, the Saudians lived in Central Asian areas to the east of the Iranian plateau, mainly in present-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan. In Chinese historical records, they are referred as to the nine surnames of Zhao, Wu, and Zhao was an ancient city in today's Gansu province where Sao Ding's ancestors were thought to live. Sao ding's surnames are common among Chinese today such as Shi, An, Kang, and Cao. Saudins were very successful business people. They did not build political regimes or states. Instead, they sought to maximize commercial interests under the ages of the strong and prosperous Han and Tang dynasties, as well as in bordering Turkic kingdoms, a rich Sodian businessman could run a caravan employing thousands of people. Their families built well connected networks along the Silk Road to help secure their passage. They often spoke several languages. In recent years, Sodian tombs were discovered in Shanxi and Henan provinces. For example, in 2000, the tomb of Jia, a wealthy Sodian businessman, was unearthed in Xi'an. Jia died at 62 years old in the year 579, when China's north was controlled by the northern Zhou, a kingdom ruled by Xianbei people. The northern Zhou government made him chief of the settlement where he and other foreigners lived. Near the tombs, remains of houses of worship for Middle Eastern religions have also been found, such as Manichaeism and Soroastrianism, as well as synagogues. In addition, foreign business people, mainly Sodiums, used their merchandise from the Road as collateral to borrow money within their family networks. It was an early form of credit. A financial tool that facilitated their expanding trade. Official records in the 11th century described Saudians as adept at business and willing to go anywhere for business. As Saudians were thought to prioritize business above family connections and have no political ambitions, rulers of the Sui and Tang dynasties from the 6th to 10th centuries and neighboring Turkic kingdoms. Deemed the group safe to hold office. Some soldins were appointed as senior officials. By contrast, Han business people were restricted. While salt and steel were monopolized by the throne, other profitable trades along the Silk Road, such as silk and jewels, were mainly controlled by foreign dealers. Also, Han business people did not have access to credit like their soldin peers. The policy of leaving trade to foreign dealers aimed to encourage domestic agriculture in China's imperial dynasties. But the town was nearly taken down by two Saudians with strong political ambitions. In the early 8th century, An Lushan was born to a Turkic mother. She remarried a Saudian general a few years later and the family lived in a Sodian settlement in today's Liaoning province in China's northeast. His childhood friend Shi Siming was also sold in there, and Lushan could speak Chinese and nine other languages, and the two men served as interpreters and mediators for the town border customs office. During that time, the town established nine military theaters along its border area. Generals leading the theaters gradually had their power expanded to control both political and military affairs and their jurisdictions. An Lushan later became the most powerful among them, as he headed three theaters. Shi Siming also became a senior military officer for the town. They were both deeply trusted by Emperor Xuanzong. But in 755, An and Shi led a rebellion lasting eight years that severely weakened the town. The Saudians' influence also declined after the dynasty crushed the rebellion. China's market economy and cultural development peaked during the Song Dynasty from the early 10th century to late 13th century. The Song included the northern Song based in today's Henan province and the southern Song mainly ruling the area south of the Yangtze River. A very famous painting titled Along the River during the Qingming Festival from the early 12th century by artist Zhang Zeduan captures bustling market scenes in the capital Kaifeng during the last years of the northern Song. Part of the Song's prosperity is attributed to relaxing restrictions on business in place during the town. Also, there were no walls or gates between residential communities, and curfews were lifted. These changes made interaction much easier. In the painting, there are shops, and pubs along the river and peddlers touting their wares. In 2018, the TV series Minglan centered on a love story set in the Northern Song. The heroine Sheng Minglan is a foodie. When she was unhappy, her husband would buy her favorite snacks or take her out to dinner in the evening to cheer her up. Does this mean that private sector was now discriminated against during the Northern Song as it had been previously? Who were the main groups engaged in business in the Northern Song capital Kaifeng, as depicted in the famous scroll? Indeed, the throne not only held monopolies over salt and steel, but also expanded them to other daily commodities such as including tea, alcohol and alum. In the painting, there is a foreign merchant's caravan entering the capital. The northern Song was not strong enough to keep the Silk Road safe like the Han in the town, as the road was blocked by its two neighbors, the Xi Xia and the Liao. However, as the painting reveals, caravans from the West and Central Asia still played a major role in the Song's foreign trade. As a result, State-owned, private and foreign businesses were all important to the northern Song market economy, where foreign merchants were the main player in foreign trade. After the northern Song was destroyed in 1127 by the Jin Kingdom, ruled by Jurchen people of the northern steppies, a brother of the northern Song's last emperor founded a new regime south of the Yangtze River, the southern Song. The region was the most prosperous part of China, economically, culturally, and technologically. There were two technological breakthroughs during the Southern Song. One was the spread of movable type printing. Private printing houses catered to a burgeoning market for print media akin to the internet boom. The other was the improvement of the compass for maritime navigation making long-distance oceanic voyages possible. Compared with the Silk Road land routes, sea routes not only reached more cities but also facilitated more cost-effective shipping. They eventually replaced the Silk Road and made the Southern Song the world's largest trade economy. But Han private merchants were still sidelined in foreign trade during the Southern Song. The port cities of Quanzhou in today's Fujian province and Alexandria in Egypt were the largest in the world during the Southern Song. In July this year, Quanzhou was included on the UNESCO World Heritage List at the starting point of the Maritime Silk Road. According to UNESCO, Quanzhou's cultural sites reflect in an exceptional manner the spatial structure that combined production, transportation, and marketing and the key institutional social and cultural factors that contributed to the spectacular rise and prosperity of Quanzhou as a maritime hub of the East and Southeast Asia trade network during the 10th to 14th centuries. Two major players dominated foreign trade in Quanzhou during the Southern Song, one was the Pu family from the Middle East and the other was the Song royal family. Han-owned businesses were still excluded from foreign trade. Neo-Confucianism took to the mainstream during the Southern Song, a school of thought that held more conservative views on society and ethics. For example, it was during this era that women's food binding became popular. Also, farmers still had a higher social status than business people. In addition, Maritime foreign trade cost a lot of money and time. Smaller Han-run businesses didn't have the means to invest in maritime foreign trade. During the Mongol-controlled Yuan dynasty of the 13th and 14th centuries, doing business was not looked down on. But Han business people, along with all other Han, were seen as inferior to the ruling Mongols, foreigners, and other ethnic groups. After the Yuan, foreign trade was banned or highly restricted during the following Ming and Qing dynasties. But in the late Ming of the 16th century, Han business people began to enjoy higher social status. Since the southern Song, China's economic and cultural centers shifted to the south, especially the Yangtze River Delta, which today remains one of the most powerful engines of China's economy. The area's market economy grew rapidly in the 16th century. Private businesses popped up in textiles, shipbuilding, oil extraction, and other sectors. Even scholars who failed the imperial exam were enticed by the business world. This was inconceivable before the 16th century, when poor scholars were much more revered than rich businessmen. Despite the improved social status of business people, agriculture was still the top priority for the Ming and Qing dynasties, and passing the imperial exam was still a much better choice for scholars than business. When foreign trade was highly restricted and doing business was not respected, China's market economy developed very slowly. However, during this time, the market economy was booming in the West which would set the stage for the coming age of exploration and industrial revolution. That is the end of our our podcast. Thank you to our writer Song Yiming, editor and translator Li Jia and copy editor JT. We hope you enjoyed it and thank you for listening. See you next week.